Quick disclaimer, although what we say is evidence and literature-based, we don't know your personal details and situation. Therefore, make sure you're discussing these things with your doctor. Probably the one thing that I, I love recommending to people because it's so simple to learn about and to incorporate are the five love languages. Getting to the bottom of what your partner needs from you and then doing that for them can literally change your relationship overnight. This is the CPR for Life podcast, and that's Dr. Magna Mahambre, relationship expert and guest today to further our discussion about relationships and the role they have in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Sagar. I'm here with Zach, and today we're actually going to be bringing on a expert. We thought connection is so important and fundamental to how people are going to live a good life, a healthy life that we wanted to bring in a master of this area. That's where Meghna Mahambre, PhD, comes in. She got her PhD from Ohio State, focusing on romantic relationships, sexual satisfaction, the evolution of marriage. She's been trained by world-renowned relationship experts, including the Gottman Institute, Esther Perel, Dr. Gary Chapman. And she runs a company that she founded called Spark Relationship and Sexual Wellness. She runs workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, corporate events, bachelorette parties, bachelor parties, divorce and breakup parties, and she's a guest speaker. And you can even find one of her talks on TED, TEDx Columbus specifically. It's called Birds and Bees, Rethinking Relationships and Sexual Education. And that is one of the key reasons that we asked her to be on this podcast today. And she so graciously said yes. So Megna, thank you very much. Hi, Sagar. Hi, Zach. Thank you for having me. Welcome. So I want to ask you right off the bat, why is this important to you? How did you get passionate about this whole area of people connecting better to their significant others? And why did you even chase this down and keep going after it and try to bring it to the world? Mm. Well, I mean, I think most of us have interest in romantic and sexual relationships, right? Um, it's a, a relatively universal experience. Most of us seek it and, and experience it at some point. So we have a general interest in learning more about how to do it well. Um, I think that my interest deepened really uh, across various life experiences. Um, growing up, I don't know that I necessarily had a lot of healthy role models in terms of what uh, a good, fulfilling relationship should look like. And that's not to single anyone out or, you know, to fault them for that. I think we all do the best that we can. Um, but I wasn't exactly sure why what I was seeing, you know, in, in, in movies and, and hearing about in songs and reading about in books wasn't matching up with the relationships I was seeing around me in real life. So that's kind of where my interest in understanding the inner workings of relationships really started. And then as I moved through my own life, um, I also went through a number of colorful relationship experiences starting in high school. Um, some of them were really positive and pleasant. Other ones were really strange and disturbing. Um, and when I think back, there was one in particular that was um, 
a pretty embarrassing situation I found myself in in high school. And um, it was a, a complicated, difficult time and very much so I felt like I was going through it alone because it was a, a weird subject and I didn't really know who I could talk to about it. I, I happened to be very lucky in that I had loving parents who would have been open to talking about it. But when you're 15, you don't think to go to mom and dad and be like, hey, I'm going through this thing, what should I do? So I kind of just kept it to myself and struggled with it for many years and had a lot of, you know, shame about it. And um, eventually went on to college and took a human sexuality class. And I remember like halfway through the semester, um, reading a paragraph in the textbook and it described exactly what I went through in high school, basically just to say, you know, XYZ is a completely normal experience. It's very typical. Most teenagers go through it. You know, it's not indicative of anything. And I remember reading that and just being shocked, you know, and I read it again and again and again. And it, it made me emotional because I was like, oh my gosh, for all these years, I thought something was wrong with me. And now I'm learning through the research that this is that an actually, you know, a really normative experience. And I think that's what kind of set me off on this path of wanting to not just think about relationships in a fun, lighthearted way, but to really study them, to understand what the research says, to understand, you know, across cultures and across ages and, um, you know, across gender, what, what patterns do we see in relationships, right? Um, so I kind of, I, I just did a deep dive informally studying relationships by myself. Like I would just go to the bookstore, to the self-help section and find any books I could find on dating and flirtation and attraction and, um, you know, marriage and healthy relationships, um, and, and just, and just read and read and read and read for personal pleasure. Um, fast forward a bit, I started more formally studying it. I studied human development and family science and eventually got my PhD on it because I wanted to teach the things that I was learning to other people um, in the same way that I learned such critical things when I was in college. And so I ended up teaching at the college level um, for a total of 10 years across a, a few different universities. And I taught different psychology and sociology classes, but my focus was always intimate relationships and human sexuality. Um, and after many years of doing that, I started having my students come up to me saying, this is our favorite class we've ever taken. We learned so much meaningful stuff that we can actually apply to our real lives outside of school. And is there any way I could bring my partner into class with me? Or is there any way I could bring my roommate or my mom or my neighbor or whatever? People were, were wanting to bring other people into the class to learn this information. And it made me start thinking, why is it that this information isn't readily accessible or available or incorporated into general education requirements for everyone? And further, it made me sad that you have to be enrolled in this college and take this elective to get this information, which such a small fraction of the population actually does. So I decided to branch out and start offering um, this information to the general community through Spark which is why I founded it in the first place. Um, and, and I did that and uh, it kind of, it was well received by the community and people started coming to workshops and to coaching and um, hiring me for corporate events and private parties. And 
I decided that, um, you know, there there's a gap, you know, and, and no, nobody is doing this work in it, but everybody's interested in it and everyone can benefit from it. And so eventually I stopped teaching and I've been running Spark full time. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, it really just started out of personal interest and it kind of snowballed into professional interest. Um, and I'm really happy to be doing it today. That sounds amazing. So it took realizing that you were a normal person and then also realizing that all the other normal people out there may not ever get told that. Yeah. You need to start this so you can actually just bring this back out and say, hey, you're normal. I'm normal. All this difficulty and hardship we're going through, that's all normal. Let's figure this out together. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. So from that perspective, how do you see the relationship between different kinds of relationships? So how does building and changing and working on one kind of relationship, for example, a partner, compare or contrast to working on relationships with friends or acquaintances? Yeah. In all our other contexts. Well, um, that's a good question. And the answer is pretty simple. And it's that uh, all of our relationships overlap in terms of what makes them successful. So if you really boil down what makes a romantic relationship successful, it's interpersonal skills. It's understanding how to talk to your partner, how to be emotionally intelligent with your partner, how to be kind and patient and forgiving of your partner, you know, how to put yourself in their shoes and imagine what it's like to be them. Um, and all of these skills translate to our friendships and to our family relationships and our relationships with coworkers. You know, when you start to learn some fundamental skills, you realize that you can apply them across the board to everybody that's in your life. So you're saying empathy is important to more than <laughs> just one person. Yeah. So we yes. have to be able to do these things with everybody we meet. This is, wow, that's burdensome. <laughs> that's also new information for you, Sagar. You should start employing that. <laughs> be nicer to me. This is going to revolutionize our relationships, actually. Yes, it is. <laughs> Uphill from here, or is it downhill? I don't know. But I, I think going in a good direction. So, okay, from that vantage point, you've worked with lots of people. You've done this for years and years. What is happening in Columbus, Ohio today? How are we doing with finding and maintaining relationships compared to how we've done in the past? Are we screwing it up more and more? Or how is this going? <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't know that I can speak to everyone in Columbus. I don't know generally what is happening um, with people's personal lives, but I will say it surprises me that there isn't more work like this going on, especially in such a big forward-thinking city. Um, there isn't a lot of relationship and sexual wellness uh, services being taken advantage of. Now, that doesn't surprise me. I think that as a society, we tend to think that relationship skills and, and sexuality are just intuitive, you know, that we should just know how to do them. So we don't need training. We don't need to seek out services. We don't need help. We just, you know, you just do it. But if that were true, I don't think that later in life, so many people would be seeking out couples therapy, you know, or marriage counseling, if they just knew how to do it. 
you know, or, or they wouldn't be experiencing issues in their sex lives with decreasing sex drive and unsatisfying sex and, you know, other problems surrounding that. So it's not, I'm, you know, it's not to knock people. We, uh, we as a society fail to educate our, our people and then they end up dealing with the consequences later. So, um, you know, I, I think that I hope we're moving in a direction where people see relational wellness as just important as like physical wellness and, and, and mental wellness. Um, but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Isn't it fascinating yeah. that you have this, like, like people talk about relationships all the time and then, you know, when you're on your deathbed is like the, the old adage that as you get older, the one thing you're going to look back and think is like the relationship's the most important thing or, you know, whether it's your spouse, your family or whatever it is. And we do nothing to actually get better at that. We just, like, we, we all know it's important, but we don't do anything about it. I think that's, that's yeah. kind of fascinating and it's good that these services are being offered and that somebody's actually bringing attention to the fact that, hey, these are things you actually need to work on and you can get better at it. Right. One of my favorite TED Talks that I actually used to show to all of my college students on the first day of class is by Robert Waldinger, and it's called What Makes a Good Life? Lessons on the Longest Study of Happiness, and it's out of Harvard University. I don't know if either of you are familiar. A 75-year study, um, and they followed a group of men, I think, out of Boston. And um, some of them were from poor communities, and some of them were from really wealthy communities. Long story short, they followed them over decades and asked them, you know, they all accomplished very different things. They all lived very different lives. And as they reached old age, they were all asked, looking back, what were the most important experiences for you? Um, what determined your happiness, you know, in your health? It turns out that... Ultimately, it's not things like wealth and status and achievements that determine our happiness and our health in old age. It's actually the quality of our personal relationships. So that includes our romantic partners, but it also includes our relationships with our friends, with our children, um, with our community. Um, you know, these people, this is the longest that, you know, we have, we speculate, we imagine, we think we know that relationships are important, but here's a scientific study out of Harvard telling us that by and large, above other factors, above and beyond other factors, the number one thing that predicts our happiness and our health in old age are the people in our lives. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And it's so <clears throat> overlooked. Like you said, we all know this, but you know what? I'm not sure we all do know it until we are on our deathbed yeah. and we're looking back right. because it just seems way too attractive or commonplace that all we really see is, all right, I need to go get my MBA or my PhD. Then I'm going to do this next thing. Then I'm going to do this next thing. Then I'm going to do this next thing. Oh, check it out. I'm 90. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. And I'm in a wheelchair. And I'm in a nursing home and I'm alone. <laughs> and now, if you think about what we spend most of our waking hours doing, you're exactly right. It's chasing goals, professional goals, academic goals. You know, we want to build up this resume and, and be impressed. And, it, you know, it's not to say those things don't matter. Of course, you want to achieve things in life and be successful, but we spend a disproportionate amount of time on things that ultimately don't matter as much as something that's free. Well, yeah, but then you have, you gotta pay for the college course to learn about it, right? 
<laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to change that over here. <laughs> if only somebody would come out into the community. But different people have different perspectives on how important this is. And I gotta imagine that that is still the case even when they end their lives. There's gotta be people out there that say, hey, I'm the CEO. Who cares if I'm alone? I became a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. Boom, happiness. So are there differences on how people place importance on relationships and how they even interact with relationships in terms of, you know, when they're this old, they'll have this perspective or this way of managing relationship or if they're a woman versus a man, if they're from Mars or Venus, I can't keep that straight. I don't know who's from where. But are there patterns that have broken out? Yes. So specifically when we're talking about how we think about romantic relationships, how we enter romantic relationships, who we choose to be with, there are some differences. Now we could go down this whole rabbit hole talking about this, but I will say, just broadly speaking, when you look at age, for example, the things that our parents' generation looked for in a, a future spouse are very different from what we look for. The things that our grandparents' generation looked for are very different than what our parents looked for. You know, so over time, I think our our standards, our expectations what makes us happy in a romantic partner changes simply because the times change, right? And, and um, you know, one simple example is that women, at least in our society today, um, no longer need to depend on a man financially to survive, right? More and more women have entered the workforce. So that totally changes the game because now we don't gotta have a ring on our finger to, you know, have a roof over our heads and to eat anymore. So that's just one simple example. but generationally things have changed um when you think about gender of course there are sex differences you know there's there in in and that that in itself is a whole you know podcast series about why and where does it come from and evolutionary theory and socialization and all that which is like terribly interesting to me but i will say yes that there continue to be differences in what um, you know, if we're talking about cisgender heterosexual men, what they look for in a partner, and cisgender heterosexual women. And then, um, you know, it, it, the, the, the response to that question becomes more diverse when we consider diverse populations. You know, what if you're not cis? What if you're not hetero? Then what do you look for? Um, but if we're still just looking at black and white numbers on paper and what research has shown, yes, there are things that um, men tend to look for in a partner, women tend to look for. Um, and then culturally, that's really interesting to me, culture and religion and the role that that can play. You know, being Indian, um, I grew up with parents who were born and raised in India, and, and then we came, they came here, I was born here, and I've grown up in this uh, Western society. So I have a really good idea of two totally different cultures and how they view um, romantic relationships and marriage and even like sex. Um, and it can have such an impact on who you choose as a partner, why you choose them, what, you know, criteria you have in your mind for what, you know, whether the marriage is worth staying in or leaving, you know, whether divorce is acceptable or stigmatized. And so I think a lot of times in pop culture, we like to simplify relationships to just follow your heart and do whatever makes you happy and then you'll be happy forevermore. You know, we see that kind of messaging on social media and by influencers and um, 
but I, it's just not that easy. You know, there's so many things that factor into whether, you know, we should even get married in the first place, who we should marry, uh, when we should get married, what that relationship should or shouldn't look like, you know, and whether we should stay in it long term. Um, so I like to think about it all on more of an individualized basis. And that's what I do with my clients when they come to me. I don't have, you know, canned responses. I don't have generic advice that I give people. I like to hear the story first. I like to hear what their values are, what their background is, how they were raised, what constitutes happiness for them, you know, and what their standards and expectations are. And then I work within that framework to help them answer the questions they have or, or reach whatever goals they have set. Yeah, that's interesting. I totally agree with you. Different cultures coming with different definitions and even just with time. I mean, it used to be that a marriage was necessary for economics. A marriage was necessary to keep the family strong, to keep the villages united, to keep war at bay. And now, here, not so much. Probably some places that might be applicable still. Yeah. But I wanted to ask a question. So you mentioned you need to ask all these people various questions because everything is so individualized. You need to ask them questions like, what are you looking for? What are your values? What is happiness? How easily can people actually answer that question? And how do they go about figuring out those answers? Yeah, that's a great question, Sadr. Um, That is part of the process itself because not everyone has even given thought to those things. Not everyone has had the opportunity to explore and think about and reflect on what shaped them to be the way they are and what influences their decisions in their romantic and sexual relationships. So simply sitting down and asking them pointed questions um, that makes them think and, you know, and feel a lot of things that maybe they've never thought and felt before is part of the process. It's part of the learning and the growing and the clarity. You know, I often think of my work as helping people find clarity and then answer their own questions because I don't want to tell people what to do, right? I'm not in a position to know what's best for them. I'm not a, 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 you know, a fortune teller. But I like to help with guiding questions, you know, and, and shedding light on areas of their life that they may, maybe didn't even think matter. And it's like, let's talk about how that plays into your decisions and how, you know, how you can best move forward. So, yeah, you're right. Not, I don't know that those answers are all, always... Um, you know, readily accessible to people and that the process of figuring them out is part of the work. So some of it has to do with really uncovering what they're thinking and how it relates to their life. So when you start helping people like this, do you find uh, some unexpected benefits or do they find some unexpected effects? What kind of things do you see develop from them being able to progress with how they can identify what they're feeling and work with that? Um, I mean, well, you know what they say about talk therapy in general, right? I, trying to think about your problems alone is very different than talking them out out loud, especially to a trusted person. And sometimes the process of simply saying things out loud helps you come to your own conclusion or answer your own question. So, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of that. But um I will say that I, I think as much as, you know, we know that romantic relationships are a matter of the heart, right? You know, our feelings, our emotions um, are very involved, but there's 
there's also very much so logic and rational, you know, rationalization that has to happen. We're not just here to fall in love and, you know, uh, drift away, you know, gazing into each other's eyes forevermore. We also have to live in real life. You know, we we potentially live in a house together that we have to manage the house and manage the finances and raise the kids and have jobs and deal with illness and whatever else comes our way. So I think the clarity that you're asking about is helpful not only in choosing a, a good partner or navigating relational issues, but also in being able to think clearly about now how does this make sense in the in our real life? You know, how how do we move forward? How do we navigate tricky situations and make decisions? Um, so logic is, you know, in my mind, the, the head is just as important in the heart as the heart in our relationship decisions. And then like we talked about earlier, those skills, once you develop them for your romantic relationship, you can also apply them to other, you know, relationships in your life too. So those skills, as you broadly mentioned them before, mainly empathy and how you speak with people. But if you were going to not be individualized and make a general sweepingness. What is the prescription for, hey, these are a few steps you can take to improve your relationships? Um, gosh, there's so many things I could say. Um, I think the biggest mistake people make is waiting until things go wrong to learn, to grow, to seek help, you know, to ask questions, to do the work. I would like to flip that around and encourage people to learn, to grow, to ask questions, to seek help before the problems come up. You know, in the same way that, um, and one of the things that I appreciate so much about what you do is that it's, it's meant to be protective and preventative in nature. And that's very much so my philosophy too with relationships. You know, we rather than just blindly choosing a partner and hastily getting married and just like, you know, uh, being on autopilot in your marriage until things start crumbling and then going, oh my God, we need to go see a therapist. Um, I feel like a more effective way to ensure a happy, healthy relationship is to do the work up front. And that's not always, um, you know, the sexy way to do it because we think, well, I don't want to study relations. I don't want to go to relationship classes or workshops or go see a, a counselor before we have problems. But you know, what type of person are you? Do you want to, do you want to wait until you get sick to, to start eating vegetables or do you want to eat vegetables up front and exercise so that you don't, you know, in hopes that you minimize the risk of getting sick later? I don't know you, which kind of person do you want to be. Personally, I want to eat the vegetables and do the exercise early, you know, so I apply that to my love life and my friendships, too. And I, and I wish that that sort of thinking was more mainstream, you know, and we could spread that message that if you're seeking out help, you know, for your relationship and you're wanting to learn and grow, it doesn't mean there's you don't have there's not to be something wrong with your relationship it doesn't mean you're dumb and you're not doing it right. And, you know, it means that you care. It means that you're invested. It means that you want to protect your relationship and prevent heartache down the road. Do you get heartache. a lot of that? Do you, do you get a decent amount of people coming in with preventative uh, goals in mind or do, are most of your people coming in that you see typically like, oh, we have, we ran into this problem and now we need help? 
Um, I get a mix of both. I still will say that I think most people come in with a particular kind of question or concern, mm -hmm. but that, that doesn't surprise me. Of course, we don't, you know, the nature of the work I'm doing is still relatively new. So I don't know that I'm even on people's radar, you know, or this type of work is on people's radar. So of course I'm, I'm going to, you know, the first few waves of people I get are going to be people looking for intervention work, mm -hmm. which is fine. I will say that I have um, been honest with my clients and told them that after my initial assessment, if I feel that the nature of their situation warrants, um, you know, a different type of professional working with them, you know, maybe a, a clinical therapist or, or something else, that I will refer them because while I do do some intervention, I, I feel like my my skill set and my passion is the, the educational piece, the front end protective preventative. So, you know, and, and it's not to say that I, I can't tell people when they're already in the middle of something, I, I do, um, but I just, I, I keep urging people, you know, do it before you need it, mm -hmm. do it. So it's easier to stop the heart attack before it happens, essentially. <laughs> Something like that. Afterwards, yeah. <laughs> and you that's were, happening. You you had that holstered the entire time she was talking. I can tell you were just waiting to to deliver that. I know. It's totally <laughs> against what I normally do. <laughs> I'm a very good listener, but that time I was just like, oh, this analogy is so good. <laughs> She's saying it. I was waiting for it to come out of your mouth, Magna. So. <laughs> I could never come up with something as clever as that, Sauger. Cle clever. That almost sounds sincere. Wow, almost. that is. You're just so, you're just so cool clever. Like <laughs> so marriage these days mostly ends in divorce. The stat that I've heard recently is 70% of all marriages end up in divorce. Was it always like this and it's just now getting more advertised, people knowing about it, or is this a new development? What are we screwing up? How do we have a successful relationship, so successful that it ends in a marriage and then it all goes to hell. <laughs> I don't know if that statistic is accurate. Um, one of the tricky things about statistics like that, um, I would say it's closer to 40 to 50% of, of marriages that start today. So not so much everybody that is married currently will get, you know, 40 for 50% of them will get divorced. I believe the statistic refers to new marriages, but even then I feel nervous even citing that because then people draw hasty conclusions like one out of every two married couples is gonna get divorced. You know, you have a 50% chance of success. Why even bother? Like. I don't know if that messaging is really um, where we want to go, but yes, you're right. Divorce is much more common now than it has been before. Um, and I guess it really boils down to what your definition of success is. You know, people often say they'll see people who are in their 80s that have been married for 50, 60 years, and what's the first question? They ask them, what's your secret? You know, and that question's always bothered me because I look at this old couple, I'm like, you don't know them? You don't know anything about what's happened in their marriage. So what's your definition of success? That they're still both alive and legally married to each other? I mean, and that's not to downplay, you know, or disrespect elderly people who've been together forever. Like that is absolutely an achievement. But I think, again, I've just seen marriages firsthand that have 
technically stay together that in my personal opinion aren't successful because they're not happy you know they're not healthy they stay together for other reasons and again if we go back to the generational thing divorce wasn't really even an option for past generations you know legally it was a lot harder to get socially it was not accepted and if you did get a divorce it was really hard to find a, a new spouse again so I don't know that people are divorcing now more often because our relationships are worse now or because our standards are higher now and because divorce is easier to get if our standards aren't met. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But as far as our standards being higher, do you mean that we're asking more of our partner? We're asking them to do things that maybe older generations didn't ask their partners to do? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, and again, I don't want to make generalizations, but in the past, criteria for a good spouse may have looked something like, well, he's got a good job and he'll be a good provider and a good dad, so why don't I marry him at 18 years old? You know, or, well, she comes from a good family and she cooks and cleans and she'll be a good mom so I'm gonna marry her you know at 21 years old we got married a lot younger our you know what we looked for in a, in a spouse was a little bit simpler and it's not to say we you know we didn't care about attraction and a little bit of chemistry and all of that but the decisions were simpler also the pool of eligibles that were available to us was smaller you know think before technology before internet before dating apps before travel um uh, you know we were uh, restricted to the people who lived in our neighborhood or our community so during those times i think our, our decisions were just you know a little bit simpler and then as we moved through life, as long as our partner maintained though that criteria that we selected them on, you know, he continues to be a good provider, so he's a good husband, you know. Um, but I think that as time has moved on and our culture has shifted and um, opportunities have opened up for younger generations to be independent, to support themselves, and also um, stigma has reduced for say, living together outside of marriage, having sex outside of marriage, um, having children outside of marriage, breaking up multiple times. And there's, you, you can do these things more easily now without the backlash. And so it begs the question, like, why get married in the first place? If I can just like date, live together, have sex, have babies, you know, travel, share finance, you can do whatever you want now, right? So nowadays we get married for more symbolic reasons, whereas in the past it was pragmatic reasons. I need a husband to survive. You know, I need a wife to to eat and 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 have sex and have babies. You know, um, we do it now for symbolic reasons and and some of those being emotional, social, you know, intellectual. We want somebody who now not just pays the bills, but that we can have a good conversation with that that stimulates us, that makes us laugh, that um, you know, supports us emotionally, that shares similar hobbies with us, that has similar value systems. Um, you know, and, and again, I don't want to make this sound like we have higher standards than, you know, our parents. Everybody has high standards at that time, point in time. Everyone thinks they're doing a better job than previous generations, and they are. Um, I just think that today, 
what we look for has become a little bit more fragile. So whereas as long as you have a good job, you're a good husband in the past. Now it's like, as long as you make me laugh and, you know, we have good sex and we have intellectual, um, you know, whatever, back and forth, then I'm satisfied. If any of that falters, I'm out. You know, I'm going to cheat or I'm going to break up with you or whatever. Those are much more fragile things that can ebb and flow through life. And so then, of course, we, we you know, our feelings fluctuate as well. And then sometimes if we're not satisfied, and again, think about how much bigger our pool of eligibles is now. So let's say you marry one person, you are constantly bombarded with images of other people who are available to you online, on social media, on dating apps, in your work environment, in your community, that, you know, it's very easy to start playing comparison games and going, am I happy with my spouse or could I potentially be happier with this person or that person or that person? So there's a number of factors that influence why, you know, uh, we are maybe getting divorced more often today. Um, but I do think that what we look for is different and what we consider a successful marriage is different. Um, and we've reached a point where we value happiness so much in our society, individual happiness, that even if it comes at the cost of our marriages, you know, ending them to find that happiness, um, we're more willing to do that today than ever before. Perhaps this is the cynic in me thinking, I'm just thinking, I know, shocker, right? That I just think it's interesting that it's kind of the human condition of always wanting something better that you get frustrated in your relationship and you start looking at other people online who are hashtag living my best life and posting this <laughs> very cultivated image of themselves online and like, I'll be happy with that person because they look like they're X, Y, and Z, not thinking that yeah. they probably have, no, they definitely have a lot of underlying issues that they're obviously not portraying on their social media yeah. avatar. I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And that's actually a really common phenomenon. Social media has hurt us as yeah. much as it has helped us. Right. And we are always comparing our own relationships to the relationships around us and sometimes draw erroneous conclusions because of it, which is a problem. Yeah. But that's, yeah. I think, going back to like the goal-directed thinking, always thinking, I think, you know, even or we are thinking about the same thing in our careers or whatever pursuits, I think we're doing this. Some of the people are doing the same thing with their relationships where they're being goal-directed and thinking that they can be moving on to the next better thing um, instead of working on what they've got. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe settling gets a bad rap. <laughs> maybe, it's, <laughs> maybe it's the way you, when you were laying that out, I got the, all I could think was, oh, that sounds kind of selfish. <laughs> Why not though? You know, one life. Why not work on the next thing? But having all that fear of missing out of who's next, what's next, mm -hmm. takes away from the work of working on a relationship. So how do you really come to that conclusion of, no, this one is kaput. There's, this yeah. one's tapped out. I need to move on. It's so anti-mindfulness right. and anti-being present. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, I agree with you, Sagar, that, you know, well, both of you, what, what you said about, like, always wanting the next best thing um, can be somewhat uh, not only selfish, but like a fruitless endeavor because you're always, you know, you're never going to be satisfied then. Um, but I think there's two, two part pieces to the puzzle. It's not just 
settling and working on what you have and accepting it for what it is. I think before that comes making sure you choose a good partner in the mm -hmm. first place. True. Because then let's say you make a hasty choice because whatever, we're human beings, we make mistakes, we're young, whatever. So let's say you marry someone early on and then it is really not a good fit. You know, you're really not compatible. There's a lot of pretty um, uh, unresolvable conflicts, you know, that dominate the marriage. Is it appropriate to tell those people, well, you just need to work harder? You just need to put more work into your marriage and just be happy and be grateful you have a partner and just said, you know, I, I don't know. Personally, I don't believe that. I think that we shouldn't, you know, in no other area in our life are we um, forced to stick with the first decision we ever made. You know, like, do you have to use the same car forever, live in the same house forever, stay in the same job forever, have the same friends forever? No, we can change our mind as we learn and grow. Yet somehow, if we marry someone early in life, it's like, well, you better love them until you die or else it's a sign of bad character, you know? It's like, well, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I didn't know who I was back then or know what I wanted or maybe what I want has changed. And so giving people room to grow, I think, is important and making that revelation later in life sometimes happens. So I think it's not just about working on whatever you have and dealing with it. I think it's like, First of all, make a good, informed, educated choice. And you know, that's easier said than done. Again, that involves a lot of education and mentorship and social support and even making those decisions and having the clarity you need to make that decision. Once you've made that decision, then yes, there is value in hunkering down and going, okay, I don't wanna keep playing the next game. Like who else would be better, who else would be better? What can I do? You know, one of the one of our, our mottos at, at Spark is, the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it, you know? Yeah, and I think that's a good point, what you're just saying that, and I don't know if this is just my my perception of it, and I'm sure it is because I don't do this for a living, obviously, but the idea that, yeah, you might've made a mistake and it might be time to move on, but there, you might not necessarily need to work on your relationship, but you need to work on something, whether that's you and the clarity of why you made a decision or why, you keep getting into the same position over and over again. You know, if I worked as a used car salesman and I hated the job and then I went and found another job as a used car salesman and hated that job <laughs> and then didn't think about why I kept ending up in the same position, why I didn't like my job in the first place, but just kept on jumping from car dealership to car dealership and being like, what, why, why am I not happier? I feel like a lot of yeah. people do the same thing with relationships. They're like, why am I with the same type of person over and over again? Yeah. Exactly. Good analogy. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you can't sell a car. Right. Maybe you're just, yeah, so many things to be going on there. And people end up in the same spot. I can think of so many examples right now of names I will yeah. not name, but so many examples. <laughs> yeah. Of people, you know, ending up with something they don't want simultaneously, simultaneously looking through dating apps while they're with somebody. Oh, yeah. Apparently, oh, this is yeah. common. So, okay. <laughs> when you talk about that time before dating apps, that, I fall there. That's me. All right. <laughs> I know. It, we like it's ancient history, oh, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel that old. Any other things that you wish people knew either in marriages or not, or common downfalls that, hey, this is a canary. And if, 
if you're noticing this, you need to pay attention. Um, I think I'll just go back to the idea of relational wellness being a lifestyle. You know, we, you, you can't just even just, you can't just pick a good partner and then marry them and hope, okay, I'm set. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna run itself for the rest of our lives. We seem to understand the need to um, continue learning and bettering ourselves in other areas, like for example, our careers. We educate ourselves, we get trained, we get the licensure, we do the apprenticeships, we get the job, and then we keep getting annual reviews. <laughs> we keep having to, you know, be evaluated by our, our supervisors and our bosses and, and improve our performance and improve our productivity and learn how to work with colleagues. And, you know, there's continued education credits we have to get. We put, we pour so much time and energy into um, building and maintaining a good career. Um, and then similarly, we do that in other areas of our life too. So, you know, um, exercise and nutrition, which I know is something, and good sleep, hygiene, that's something you guys talk about often on your podcast, which I love. You know, you don't just do it, you don't go to the gym one time and go, I'm healthy <laughs> for life. You, the, the idea is you gotta keep going back to the gym and it doesn't mean every single day and it doesn't mean you can't have an off day. But more often than not, are your habits, you know, are your habits supporting the things that matter most to you? Well, if having a good, healthy, happy, fulfilling relationship is important to you, it can't get pushed to the back burner, you know, at least not long term. Of course, once in a while it does because life gets hectic. And one of the beautiful things about our relationships is that our partners can understand and empathize if we're busy or stressed or distracted. But, you know, is that the norm where you're busy and, and, and stressed and distracted all the time and only occasionally pay attention to your partner, you know, or can you, you know, flip it around and make sure that you're making conscious effort to focus on the relationship and, and not just in generic ways like date night, you know, once a week we, you know, go out for dinner and drinks. That's great. Dinner and drinks are great. But is it really improving your relationship? Is it addressing underlying issues that need to be talked about? Is it developing new skills or deepening your intimacy if you merely just go to a restaurant, eat food, and drink alcohol together, you know? So I think even this idea, I think absolutely date night is step one. It's it really what it's trying to get at is quality time together, which is step one. But what are you doing with that quality time? I think that becomes the question is, um, how do you spend time together? What do you talk about? In what ways do you continue to deepen um, your connection with each other? Um, because th that's really, those are the ingredients for lasting love, right? Not just, not just physically being in the same space together. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, the, that's kind of the, the quick and easy thing that I will tell everyone is, are you, I don't like the word work. It's like, are you putting in the work? It makes it marriage sound like, you know, another job you have to have. Like, a few, how many hours a week are you putting in? But are you, you know, going back to some of the themes in your podcast, mindfulness, you know, how present are you with your partner? How tuned in are you? How intuitive are you? And the good news is many of these things are skills that can be developed. So if you're hearing this and you're going, oh, I don't even know where to begin, like what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? 
you're not expected to know. We aren't born, you know, knowing how to be good partners. Just like everything else in life, it's a skill. You know, knowledge can be developed. You can practice the habits, and then you will you will start to see um, the the fruits of your labor in time. Nice. So can you give us any habits that people listening that say, okay, all right, I say I'm willing to commit some quality time to working on stuff, but how do I get started? Yeah. Probably the one thing that I, I love recommending to people because it's so simple to learn about and to incorporate are the five love languages. Most people have heard of the book or at least that phrase and, you know, many people use it inaccurately, but this idea of figuring out what your partner, you know, how your partner understands love and speaking to them in that language. Um, a, a common mistake we all make is treating our partners the way we want to be treated or loving our partners the way we understand love. And that's not always the case. So getting to the bottom of what your partner needs from you and then doing that for them can literally change your relationship overnight. And I know that sounds really gimmicky and I hate to say things like that, but I cannot tell you how many couples I've worked with and even in my own relationship where as soon as we identified what our love languages are and then started speaking them to each other, it was like, oh my God, I'm so happy. He's so happy. How is this so easy? And really, if you just look at it, it's just, again, basic interpersonal skills. And when you figure out how to apply them to your romantic relationship, you realize it's the same thing with your friendships, with your family, with anybody else in your life. Figure out what it is they need from you and give it to them. So don't buy everybody that you know the same Christmas present. You'd personalize exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. Huh. Sorry, I'm having a deep thought, but it's not coming out. I mean, I could see I that. See, I see the wheels could, turning in your eyes. If this was a video <laughs> pot, that would have been really good, but unfortunately, it just came across yeah, as a bunch not, of silence. It's not. He's like, yeah. something's there. Some <laughs> feeling something. You can't put words to it. There's a spark, but there's no flame yet. <laughs> <laughs> Was that another pun? Yes, but I just came up with it <laughs> because the <laughs> big spot there. Is that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds okay. So just to summarize, from what I think I've heard in total here is that when it comes to relationships, the key thing is giving and just being of service to the person that you want to connect with. And however they are going to interpret that service. Because if you try to give it, if they only recognize Canadian money and you try to pay them in pesos, it's not gonna work. <laughs> yes. Right? Right. But if you pay them in Canadian money, what are these, loonies and toonies? I dollars. don't know what they call them. They're, they're dollars, no, they're Canadian dollars. No, no, <laughs> I can't be right. But... <laughs> Canadian money and Mexican yeah. money. <laughs> Instead of, I don't know why you, you you highlight you defined the Mexican peso, which is great, but Canadian money. I don't know why. <laughs> no, there's something deeper there. We can uncover it later. <laughs> but yeah, so it comes down to service. That may be an oversimplification, but if someone's important to you enough to want to build a life or a friendship 
or a community, whatever it is, listen to them, figure out what they need, and then give it in the way they understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that my wife and I always talk about this, about how love is an act. I mean, love is intentional. It's, you know, as far as romantic relationships go, a lot of people think like, you know, love is just a feeling. Like you just feel right. like you're in love. And I'm like, no, no, like love is, you can just feel like you're in love and just say you're in a great relationship. Like, I don't know if that's how this works. <laughs> <laughs> or is that just your language? Maybe. I mean, I'm not a very feeling person, so I don't know if love and <laughs> it's not really my thing, which which Nina knows, which is great. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that you're you're hitting the nail on the head there. For some people, it is words. For other mm -hmm. people, is it acts? You know, for other people, it's quality time. For other people, it's gifts, and for other people, it's physical touch. And it's not to say we only need one of them. Just because right. one of them may rank as your top love language doesn't mean you don't need the others. But either because of the way we were raised and how our parents loved us or what we learned growing up, we tend to be responsive to some of those types of love more than others. And so it's, um, you know, just to add some nuance to what you were saying, Sagar, when you said the, the moral of the story is being giving, you know, and being of service to your partner. Um, specifically being of service to your partner in the way they want you to be in service to them. So I might be sitting here, you know, giving you gifts all the live long day, you know, and, and you, you'll go, okay, gifts are nice, but I just really want you to like give me positive feedback or say nice things to me or compliment me once in a while. Or, you know, you might be, um, let's see, doing acts of service for me, you know, fixing things and, and repairing things and running my errands and, um, you know, helping me with chores. But if my love language is physical touch, I'll say, great, I love that you help me with all that stuff, but you never hold my hand, you know, or you never sit next to me or we don't have enough physical intimacy. So it's not even just so much doing things for your partner or being in service, but it's being in service to them the way that they want you to be. Don't change the oil in a car that has a flat tire. God, I'm just sticking with the auto theme today. So vehicle oh theme God. is what I'm going yeah. with. Yeah, used car salesman. Do yeah, not, yeah, car. your car's got a flat tire. If you change the oil, you're not doing any good. <laughs> That's fantastic. You That's need true. the proper I love service. how many car references you've made during this conversation. I'm going to try to bring up the, the lion theme pretty soon here. I'm going to try to relate it back to the lion <laughs> in the jungle. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, don't hold back because I think we're about to wrap this up. <laughs> I'll see if I can squeeze it in here. I got, I got a couple seconds left. Okay. So, Magna, out of all the things we've discussed today and your just breadth and depth of knowledge, if you could just give our listeners a call to action, something they can do practical that can help improve the quality of their relationships, what would you tell them? Put your cell phones down. Yeah. There is so much research being done on the impact of technology use on relationships and how much time we spend scrolling on our phones, social media, work emails, you know, surfing the internet. Um, we think it's a, a relatively innocuous activity, but in reality, it has negative impacts on um, our relationships when we are with our partners. Um, we don't realize how many hours get sucked into staring at our phones. It's generally the first thing. <laughs> my, one of my favorite uh, mentors, uh, um, Esther Perel, often says, your cell phones are usually the first thing you touch in the morning and the last thing you touch at night. 
right? We used to roll over and say good morning to our partners, right? And give them a kiss. And at night we'd roll over and say good night and give them a kiss. Um, our cell phones are starting to replace the, the interaction and the companionship that we used to have with our partners. Um, putting your cell phone down. I mean, and I know that <clears throat> sounds kind of open-ended. It's like, well, when and where? I will just give you a simple tip. Um, this is something my partner and I actually do, but we have a basket in different rooms in the house. We have a basket in the kitchen, we have a basket in the living room, we have a basket in the bedroom. And when we're in that room, because you know, nowadays, none of us have real phones and most of us don't have landlines anymore. We have to take our phones around with us in different rooms in case something comes up. But there's a difference between it being on your body versus being somewhere in the general vicinity in case, you know, someone calls. So putting it face down in a basket when you're in a room allows you to be more present and interactive and not constantly picking it up and checking it, which we do out of habit. Um, so it's nearby, but it's not right within your, you know, reach or within your view. And then when you move to a different room, you know, you can take the cell phone with you and put it in that basket. Um, but then also having certain areas where there's maybe a no cell phone zone. So for example, in our dining room, we don't allow cell phones. So when we are sitting down to eat a meal together, there cannot be a phone in that room. It needs to be in the kitchen, in the basket, and ideally silenced. For that, those 30 or 45 minutes we're eating, nothing can be so much of an emergency that it can't wait, you know? So figuring out maybe using the basket idea and, and having you know, a space that you can put your phones down when you're at home um, or determining which rooms you want to be no cell. Some people do their bedrooms as a no cell phone zone, you know, and they just use a good old fashioned alarm clock in the morning to wake up. Um, but it can just make a world of a difference in your relationship if you, um, you know, cultivate a healthier relationship with technology relative to your actual human partner. That's a yeah. great bit. Wow. That's really good advice. That is fantastic, especially with that pearl from Esther Perel. Yeah. That, you, that just really brought it home to me that that is the way it used to be. And now it's like another appendage, which is carrying these things around. Yeah. And I totally agree. We've instituted some of that in our house. My kids know that if anyone brings out the phone, they just call them out, whether it's a parent or a grandparent, no phones at the table. So yeah. Put them away. And I can yeah. see how it just creates an, a barrier. For example, if the grandparent's over and they get distracted by their phone, then they're no longer at the table in the conversation. And the kids miss that attention and they want it back. Right. They will ask for it back. Has your, I'm trying to think if I've been called out at your house for that. I think I have been. Probably. Which is great. <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool that you do that with guests. Oh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have. I think you were telling a story and something happened on your phone and you gave it some attention and that no, you can't interrupt that story. Yeah, I don't remember what it was, <laughs> but I remember being like, huh, well played. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's impressive. I like that. That's fantastic. And then, you know, I don't know where watches fit in, but those things can get in the way too. With all oh, that alert. Just bad. Yeah, just as bad. Pop them if in the basket. Watch. Mm-hmm. So that was fantastic advice. If people are really trying to get serious in prevention or treatment of their relationship woes, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you? Um, well, my so the company is called Spark Relationship and Sexual Wellness. 
Our website is sparkwithmegna.com, which I'm guessing you'll have the link in, in the description for people. I know my name can be hard to spell. Um, and we're also on social media, so you can find us on Instagram at sparkwithmegna. Um, if you're even remotely interested in this kind of work, if you feel like you could benefit from it, again, you don't have to currently be experiencing problems. You also don't even currently need to be in a relationship to benefit from this work. In fact, the best time to learn these skills is before you're even in a relationship, right? So if you're curious, if you want to learn more, I recommend checking out our website and seeing all the different um, fun things that we do. So for example, we do public workshops um, on different topics that are interesting to people and they're open to the general community. You can just buy a ticket and show up. We tend to do them at fun breweries and restaurants. Um, to, to kind of give it a fun, lighthearted feel. And then I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So um, if you are interested in, in really doing some more serious work and, and wanting private guidance and feedback, um, you can request the 30-minute consultation, a free consultation with me to talk about the coaching experience and what it could do for you. Um, and then we also do corporate events like employee wellness seminars and we do private parties like bachelor bachelorette parties or divorce breakup parties. And then I'm available to do guest speaking um, across a lot of different contexts. So all of that to say I am here to help people, you know, whether it's in a public context, in a private context, in a serious context, in a lighthearted context, I want relationship and, and sexuality education to be widespread and easily accessible um, and immediately applicable in people's lives. So check out the things that we do on the website you can send me an email or a message or call me and I would love to answer any questions you have and see if I can be of help to you. All right. Thank you, Magna. We really appreciate you coming here and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and practical steps with us. Of course, it was my pleasure to be here. Thanks again to Dr. Magna Mahambre for coming on our show and really kind of reinforcing the importance of relationships and connection in our lives. Uh, as we talked about in our last podcast, it's really important to getting and staying healthy. If you have more questions about what she can offer you or what kind of services in general she offers, check out her website at uh, sparkwithmagna.com. She also has a podcast uh, and she can probably provide you with even more personalized information than we got you here today. In the meantime, check us out at CPRHealthClinic.com for more of what we have to offer. And remember, the way you live can save your life.